0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So we are in Acts chapter 17 today. And if you recall, um, this is uh, Paul and uh, his entourage making their way um, from originally this particular journey started in uh, Antioch, just uh, uh, northwest and on the coast of um, of, uh, Palestine there and, and has worked his way, uh, now, uh, across what is now Turkey. And when last we left in verse 16, we were, um, I guess we were, we were in Philippi and, uh, they had just, uh, been busted out of jail by this very, very, um, fancy earthquake. And it said in, um, they were, uh, you know, came as we've seen, as Paul has gone from town to town. That, uh, eventually, there's, there's opposition against them, and um, we saw that in in verse 35. Of course, they had been put in jail, and then they were busted out of jail, and and uh, the magistrates uh, in charge there said, "You know what? Um, we'd we'd like for you to leave," and and they kind of asked nicely this time, and so so they did. In verse 38, uh, we'll we'll pick up there and. Uh, Chapter 16, it says, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came out and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out from the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And so now we're in chapter 17, and um, we're going to pick up from there, and it says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Um, I don't know if you still have your little your little maps. Uh, we've handed out little maps periodically. Um, and uh, this is Paul's second journey. And we've got the uh, the pink over here where they started and the orange across to Turkey. And now um, we're in the yellow uh, off to... Uh, to Greece and so forth, and uh, that's kind of where we are now. We're heading to Thessalonica. It's a port city, um, a bustling area, uh, and it was on this this uh, road, um, Via Ignatia, I think, is is what it was called. Uh, but there was a, a a trade route that went all from uh, the easternmost parts of Turkey, across the top of, of Asia Minor there, and uh, on across the top part of the Greek Peninsula, and then it would take you to the shortest distance uh, across the sea uh, over to Italy. And so this was the big trade route, and that's kind of how Paul was, was heading. Uh, so that's that's kind of where we are from a geographical standpoint. I'm sure your Bibles have maps and so forth that talk about the, the second uh, missionary journey of Paul. So that's kind of where we are. And uh, uh, as, as we go through today, we're going to talk about being in Thessalonica for a while. And then we're going to talk about uh, a brief sojourn in Berea. And then we're going to make our way south down the Greek peninsula uh, to Athens and one of the one of the more famous uh, kind of encounters that Paul has and um, uh, I want you to kind of listen to the, the themes that are in common uh, with these different areas and the themes that are kind of different um, throughout our study so far we've had uh, this theme where where Paul would, get to a new city, uh, find some believers, hang out with them, teach them, try to persuade them. He always uh, would go to the Jews first. Uh, he was a Jew, of course, and even though he talks about going to the Gentiles and so forth, he, he really he he continues to try to reach the Jews. And uh, then there's usually some sort of opposition, and then he moves on. But we're also going to encounter um, some additional things. Now, uh, one of the other themes we've seen has been um, his interaction with the, the civil authorities, uh, sometimes at the prompting of other jealous factions, so we're going to see some of that today. But then there's going to be a new thing that we're going to see, and this is where he um, not only is trying to deal with the people who kind of have a knowledge of Yahweh God through through being uh, Jews or familiarity with the Old Testament, and he's not only going to have this civil um, political thing, but now he's going to encounter a philosophical uh, audience. And it's just like, um, I-, I want you to listen to the consistency in his message, but then also the things that are different. So it's different, different packaging. right? Every uh, In the grocery store it'll have a new package of your favorite detergent or whatever, and it, I, I don't quite understand it, because they give you this new packaging, but then it says same formula, or same ingredients, you know, it's like they want it to look different, but yet they also want to reassure you that it's the same, I'm not sure what that accomplishes it, um, but anyway, so we got uh, maybe the same message, maybe a different packaging, and, and that's a that's, uh, going to be where we are. And it's like us, right? Uh, we change clothes. It's it's just the same us, but different package, um, for better or worse. All right, so verse 2. So Paul went, uh, I guess to back up, there was a synagogue of the Jews in Thessalonica, all right? And like he normally does, verse 2, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer And to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So here we have uh, Paul uh, going to the synagogue there, meeting up with them, and uh, uh, reasoning from the scriptures. He did it three weeks in a row. And... um, and saying, you know, this had to happen. He talked about, uh, you know, so uh, if you think back, also in Luke, the last chapter in Luke, after the resurrection, and we have the story of the, the two men who are on the road to Emmaus. Remember this story? It's after the resurrection. This other guy joins up with them. They're walking, and he's explaining all the things that happened in Jerusalem, the big doings, and then finally uh, they realize that it's Jesus that's talking to them and he goes through and he, t- and he talks about, you know, these things had to happen. It was part of God's plan, part of God's story. So um, Luke's kind of has that same kind of phrasing as he talks about this. this. This had to happen. It was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then it, his second point is, this: this Jesus that I'm telling you about, is that Christ? So, he said, the Christ had to suffer, right? Explaining to them why the Christ would have to suffer, and then they knew that Jesus had suffered, and then the conclusion was, these are the same people. And many were persuaded. And again, we hi- we see that Luke highlights the fact that there were, there were women uh, part of that, which is, Uh, which is important. But now the opposition, verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So let's, let's pause there. So again, it's the Jews, it's the, it's the God people who are making the biggest fuss about all this. And it says, what was their motivation? They were jealous. Isn't that petty? It wasn't that they even thought he was preaching heresy. They didn't even listen long enough to find out if he was preaching the truth or not. They were just jealous. And it says, taking some wicked men of the rabble. They just found some of the rough I guess some people from the rough side of you know the area there and and and, and created their own mob set them sitting in an uproar and it says attack the house of Jason so Jason was uh, the guy that was hosting them there uh, in Romans 16 um, uh, we have reference to uh, Jason I don't know if it's the same Jason or not. But it, it um, references... This might have been maybe a, a, a relative of, of Paul's. Um, it says... Uh, let's see. In Romans 16, 21, it says... He's making his salutations. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. And uh, so, I don't know. Uh, but maybe this was a relative of Paul. And uh, it said uh, they were uh they, they they set him in an uproar and um, and then it says in verse six they couldn't find them. So so Paul and Silas kind of escape, but the the mob is so unruly they're not satisfied with that. And maybe because Jason was a relative, they go grab him up and make him put up it sounded like basically like a restraining order. You know, we don't want Paul anywhere in these in this area anymore. And they, they got some money out of him and I guess I haven't gotten to that verse yet. Uh, let's see. this men have turned the world upside down. I'm at verse 6 here. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So um, they they made Jason put up some sort of a bond, um, uh, and I guess that's what it took to to satisfy the mob. And they were trying to um trying to uh, uh involve the civil authorities by claiming that that these people were preaching uh against Caesar and um ironically uh that's probably what Paul was doing uh although not overtly um in 1 uh, Thessalonians there's a there's a uh a, a verse that talks about um Paul says uh when they say there is peace and security, then sudden destru- destruction will come upon them. Well, peace and security was something that Roman law was supposed to ensure. So Paul was saying there in 1 Thessalonians, um, these people that say there's peace and, se- and security, they're not really able to provide that. Uh, that can only be found in Jesus. So, so really, he was uh, in some ways preaching against uh, Caesar, but, but maybe not overtly. Uh, He was actually in Thessalonica a good while. uh, If we piece it together from uh, other parts of scripture, um, uh, in his letter to Philippians, he talks about the fact that he was there long enough for them to send him money twice. So he was probably there, I don't know, we know it was at least three weeks, but probably many more weeks besides that because considering travel and everything for the people in Philippi to send him money twice he would have had to be there a little while and then there's another another reference that he was there uh long enough with the Thessalonians to actually work for a while because he talks about um that he labored and toiled uh he paid his own way while he was there and uh, we know Paul was a tent maker and um uh, so he was there long enough to work. So anyway, he's there in Thessalonica um, and long enough to make the Jews jealous. And, and so he has to leave. Uh, so in verse 10, we find out where he went to next. It says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. So here's our theme, right? Now, here is where they come off the main road, so to speak they they took a left they're heading west on the road to Rome and they hang a left and it's it'd be basically like if you were traveling east to west across Florida and decided to go down to Miami this is a, a big detour they're going to wind up going down to That's definitely not on their way uh, they're going to hang a left there and head down to Berea uh, and they head to the synagogue and um, you know <laughs> Uh, Paul knows that they're either going to love me or hate me, um, but he's given it a shot, and these Jews were a little bit different. In verse 11, it says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men, Uh, So things went well there in Berea. And because of this one particular phrase where it says, they received the word with, I guess two phrases, they received the word with all eagerness and they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. For that reason, all across, I know the U.S. and probably other places too, there are a lot of churches who have adopted that name, right? Mm -hmm. The Berean churches. And uh, uh, this is, Uh, basically what they're saying when they adopt that is to say we love the bible we believe it to be true and and we're going to try to base our decisions on that and i think that's what they're trying to say uh in verse 13 (laughs) you know this is a pesky bunch from thessalonica Um, they are zealous in the true sense of the word i guess the old saul would have been proud um verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, having received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to as soon as possible, then they departed. So uh, Paul uh Blitz off uh, for a season there, from from Timothy and Silas, and he gets on a boat and goes south down the the um, eastern coast of the Greek peninsula, and he gets uh, down to Athens, and. Um, uh, He's there for a while, and then he tells the people who are with him, uh, "You guys going back uh, because I, I need I need Timothy and Silas back with me." So, so that's what happened. So, verse sixteen picks up um, uh, with the time in Athens, and you got to hand it to Luke; he really does. He's packing a lot of information: names and places, and geography, and what's happening, and and it's pretty easy to follow in a pretty short. Um, phrasing there. Verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the where? In the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So uh, Athens um, was at this day and age um had fallen out of its full glory from from when it had once been the the its most prominent but it was still considered a prominent city from a cultural standpoint um, and from a philosophical standpoint and there were tons of uh, religious things going on there and that's what Paul was commenting on uh, so uh, certainly there were people that were very Interested in, uh, in hearing what was going on. And we're going to see that um, b- because he's in this marketplace area and he catches um, uh, uh, the ear of some of the philosophers there. And we're going to hear about two different schools of philosophy here in verse 18. It says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, it's two different groups, also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And Luke adds, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So the Epicureans, uh, just to give you a little shorthand, um, let's see, I found where someone would phrase this up pretty nicely. Yeah. Um, This is small enough phrasing to, to write in the margin there. The Epicureans, their theme was enjoy life. They wanted to pursue the pleasurable things in life Um, god really wasn't or any gods per se wasn't necessarily that it wasn't that wasn't really a part of what they were worried about Uh, they wanted to enjoy the finer things of life and that word epicurean taste and so forth uh, still is with us today Um, they weren't necessarily full-on hedonists because they also believed in kind of moderation. They, they didn't want to be, um, they, they wanted to just stay calm, enjoy life, enjoy the finer things, but they didn't want to go too far in any particular direction. Um, this is probably, if you really pinned the average you know non-believer down in America, this is what most Americans are trying to do too, right? They don't really want to make any waves. You know, that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll pay attention enough in politics so I can go with the mainstream, and I just, you know, I just want to live my life and and enjoy the finer things and make a little more money and buy a few more things and, you know, that's sort of a philosophy. So that's the Epicureans to enjoy life. The Stoic philosophers, uh, the little shorthand there is endure life. All right. So, so they were like. um uh they they thought that there was a little bit of god in everyone so technically they were pantheists um god was far off um far off from them but uh they thought that um you know maybe you could you could look for god a little bit um a little longer definition uh it says Uh, comparing both. It says, the Epicureans held a theory according to which the world and the gods were a long way off from one another with little or no communication, so the result was that you should get on with life as best as you could and discover how to get the most pleasure from a quiet, sedate existence. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed that divinity lay within the present world. There was God in everyone, it says, and within each human being. And this divine force, though hardly personal, could be discovered and harnessed. Good living, then, consisted in getting touch with and living according to this inner divine rationality. This is Star Wars philosophy, right? The the force be with you, that sort of a thing. Um, So that's those two different things. Now, when it says here, it says, uh, what does this babbler wish to say? It says he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And, Jesus, and Luke says he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. In their hearing, the resurrection was a female deity. So that kind of caught their eye, or their ear. He's talking about this masculine figure and this feminine figure. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. It's like two different things. And um, so that was kind of... Okay, well, that's interesting. And it says in verse 19, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know what these things mean. Verse 21, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. What does that sound like? This is Facebook, right? (laughs) <laughs> it's all about what's happened lately, right? Or Twitter, if, if you're uh, the commander-in-chief. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except the telling and hearing of something new. Now, when we sent out the, the request to see what study we're going to do next, one of the things that you guys wrote down was Ecclesiastes, or I guess that was one of our choices. And what does Ecclesiastes tell us? There's nothing new, right? There's really nothing new. Um, But it's interesting. Now, one other little thing. Gosh, we haven't even got to the main part here. Um, This Arapagus, where they brought him, was uh, kind of a council where you would be heard by the local dignitaries there, and they would decide if the new religion that you were talking about was good enough to be part of the the Pantheon, the, the 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 list of religions that was going on there, they would listen to you and decide, okay, is this what you're talking about? Is it good enough to kind of make the make the list, so to speak? And that's where it was doing. Now, the interesting thing is, this Arapagus, in their history was established by Apollo. And the crux of the pronouncement was Apollo saying, there is no resurrection. So one of these ironies that you know, God does, here you have Paul in the council that is named for the concept of there being no resurrection, and the people are asking to hear about Jesus and the resurrection. Interesting. So verse 22, Paul gets to say his piece. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Here's the new packaging. Paul is going to try to charm him a little bit. He's going to butter him up a little bit. He's going to try to create some common ground. This is what you do when you talk to a new group. You try to make some connections with them. So maybe they'll listen to you a little bit. And it's kind of funny, right? Because he's saying to these groups that aren't necessarily um, godly, but he is saying, you know, it looks like you guys are very religious. And here's his evidence, verse 23. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship... So, remember, he was bothered because there were so many idols. A temple to this, a temple to that. So many idols. He says, I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So he says directly to them, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Remember Isaiah? Idols. He said, you know, you carve idols out of wood, and then you throw the wood in the fire. You know, what, how silly is that? Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all, raising him from the dead. So this was his message. So many things he says about God. I mean, we may want to start back here next week. But it says, first of all, I'm talking about a God who is not worshipped in your temples and is certainly not made out of stone or wood or whatever. He's not made by human hands. Furthermore, all the sacrifices and stuff you're doing, that doesn't really, there's nothing he needs from you. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need your incense. He doesn't need your offerings. He's not really impressed with that. And we know this from Scripture too, right? What does he want? To obey is better than sacrifice. Uh He doesn't need us. Furthermore, you didn't create him, he created you. And here's, I I tried to pick out a little key verse in each one of our passages today, just kind of for myself. And the one that, that struck me was verse 27, or part of, I guess, 26 and 27. He made from one man every nation, so he made man, verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. A God who wants you to find him. So think how this would have been heard by the Epicureans, who thought their God was so distant that he didn't really have any impact on their lives, so therefore they could kind of just maximize their own enjoyment. So now they're hearing about a God who maybe isn't that far from them, that wants to be found. And then how would it have been heard by the Stoics who thought that there was a little bit of God inside of everyone, it was somehow all connected, being spoken of as a distinct entity that you could have a relationship with. Not that there was... Not that you were God, but that there was a God that wanted to know you. I mean, Paul is saying so much to to give them a, a different idea of a God than what they have really heard of before. In verse 32, and when you're confronted with something this profound. There are always going to be people who don't quite know how to take you, and that's what happens here. Verse 32, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Remember where he was talking about. Resurrection was like, seriously? Some mocked him, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined and believed, among whom also, were Dionysius the Areopagite, apparently someone who was prominent there, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So, Paul talked about God the Creator, God the Provider, He gives you things, the Ruler, but God the Savior. One commentator said, if you Apparently, know more than I do about his Greek arguments. That he actually was calling attention to um, even older philosophy that was by Plato. That was saying um, the the Plato people were kind of agnostics. You know, we don't we don't really know if there's a God or not. And um, and so he's trying to say, you know what? I'm telling you that there that there is God can be known. So as I thought about this, it made me think what do we think about God? There was a quote I came across from the the great pastor A.W. Tozer. It says, "What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us." So Is God your daddy? Is God your judge? Is God your... How would you fill in the blank? If what Pastor Tozer says is true, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, how does that affect us? Is God our Savior? Is, is, is our God the one who's got me out of so much trouble and he can get you out of trouble too? Is that the God you talk about? Is God the God that has forgiven me of so many things and I know he can forgive you too? Or is it the God I don't really understand so I can't really help you either? You know, something else to think about. Do we think of God as someone who wants to be found? Mm -hmm. How many times have you heard people say, well, and even some poets who weren't maybe that interested in hanging out with church people would say, you know, I find God in creation. Of course, that's biblical, right? What are the other places that we maybe need to be looking for God, maybe when we don't expect to find him, but maybe he's there? Um, Think about this, and I'll close. You look for something differently when you expect it to be there. Where's Waldo? Heard of this? the little cartoon, and you know on that page there's this little character and you've got to find him. You know he's there and you keep looking and you keep looking and you keep looking until you find him because you know he's supposed to be there. But if you go looking for something in your house, you're not really sure that it's even there, you don't look that close as opposed to, I know it's here, right? So if you take that to God, think about... (coughs) If God really wants to be known, are we looking for him in all the right places? All right, let's close. Father, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your Son, and we pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, continue to show yourself to us in ways that we don't expect. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.